My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Pod. Another lovely Friday, even though it's supposed to be spring, and of course it's 28 fucking degrees. Yeah, I thought we were done with this shit. You know, like baseball season's here, like we were just talking about before we hit record. It's supposed to be warm. We're supposed to be, you know, vaccines are out. We're supposed to be getting happier. And yet today yeah. I wake up to 28 degrees. Just It's just not helping the cars. It's crazy how much like we just had that what, that like two week stretch where it got nice. Like how much more productive you are when just when the sun is out. And like, so just when it's warm, like, you know, working out, getting shit done. And then as soon as it's cold outside, I'm like, I just want to put on sweatpants and not do fucking shit all day. You know? just could not agree more as like a, a person who's motivated when the circumstances are optimal, you know, <laughs> when they're not, it's, it's tough. It's tough. But one the thing, does, thing, yeah, exactly. Exactly. One thing, Eric, though, that does get me out of bed every day. Oh yeah. It gets you geeked up. It gets, it gets you guessed. <laughs> Seriously. I, I wake up and I'm all like, Oh, I hate waking up. Life is terrible. Work sucks. Oh wait, we got a new episode of a big Marvel show. <sighs> And that gets me kind of going in the morning. You know, that's that's my hot shower in the morning, basically. Fair enough, fair enough. And I'm excited to talk about episode three, specifically because I have strong feelings about it. I've been very on board with Falcon and Winter Soldier so far. This one, pulling back the praise a little bit. So I'm uh-huh. excited to dive into that. Before we get to that, of course, as is customary, got to hit all the trending news of the week because there's always so much going on in the entertainment industry big story from a couple days ago, which I wrote about on observer.com. Netflix has purchased Knives Out 2 and Knives Out 3 for $450 million. Eric, it's one of the largest acquisitions in Hollywood history. And if we're talking about single value, that's basically $225 million per film. It is the largest acquisition in film history. So that's wild. Uh, Daniel Craig is returning to star. Ryan Johnson uh, writing and directing. He's actually already written the two films and production on the first one is going to start in late June. The cast, of course, as Ryan Johnson has said, will Ryan be Johnson's all new. busy as fuck these days, huh? Yeah, he's got, he's got a Peacock show with N- Natasha Lyonne coming. Uh, he's working on some other stuff. Obviously, his Star Wars trilogy probably is not happening. But he's got a lot in the in the bag, which I'm happy about because he's a great creator. And one of the reasons I talked about in, in my Observer article and, and online on Twitter is that Netflix is desperate for franchises, very, very hungry for franchises because they can't compete with the IP of a Disney with Disney Plus or of a Warner Brothers on HBO Max. And because you got to remember, these other studios have decades of experience of content development to Netflix's seven years. So this is a move that is a little bit of a panic buy, but when you have the money, doesn't matter. So between this, Extraction, The Old Guard, The Gray Man, their their rom-coms, uh, like to all the boys that I've loved before in the kissing booth, Netflix is pushing hard to develop original homegrown franchises. And uh, I understand the business behind spending $450 million on two movies. Seeing Knives Out is one of my last memories from the before time. I think I saw a screener at the Times Square AMC. And um, we might have been at the same one, actually. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? You know, this is a uh, a. I love that Daniel Craig. Like we're locking him into something new, right? Like we yeah. know, like like now we know, like all right, we're getting more of Daniel Craig in this, not quite Gonzo role, but he is clearly the accent is up. Gonzo. He's hamming it up, and when Daniel Craig is having fun, it's usually a, a good thing for all of us. This one shooting in Greece, which perhaps that's where it's going to take place. That sounds dope. 
casting has begun. Now, assuming Netflix is going to want to blow this out, right? The first one cost them $40 million, and that was pretty much all shot in what seemed like the outskirts of Boston or, or some shit. So in this, like 25 days, too. Yeah, so this one is definitely going to cost them more. You imagine, because of where the original Knives Out set the bar... They're going to want to stunt cast the hell out of this. Oh, they, they have, definitely are getting the A-listers. And have seven, eight, nine A-list names. So the question becomes, B, for you, since once a dollar sign becomes involved, it's strictly branded space. <laughs> my uh, my eyes glaze over. And I just, dude, I, I, I've been trying to find an apartment this week. So I've been, de- and it's the first time that I've been doing it on my own and don't have like, my roommate now yeah. is a is a finance guy, so he's always dealt w- with this shit. I'm out there on my own. They're talking about net effective rents, and honestly, I like my my brain shuts down. It's overwhelming. You really, I is. like. I have like a panic attack because I just I'm like, lady, I don't understand the words you're throwing at me, so I'm gonna take them as disrespect. Yeah. That's listen, my- there's, there's a reason both of us became writers. Like, so, I, I know the business, but not like the numbers. But it's fascinating because you're still in the business side of it. And business is inherently a numbers. So how does Netflix define this as being worth the cost for them? What's that going to take? So that's a really, really good question. Uh, so number one, box office success is always a strong indicator for a long tail of, of success, which means something that does really well, the box office generally is going to do really well on video on demand purchases. It's going to do really well on streaming. It's going to, you know, sell DVDs. So starting from the point of like, this was a theatrical hit and we're going to spend a lot of money on the sequels. It already makes a little bit more sense. The idea most likely it it, it isn't clear between the variety and deadline articles. If Ryan Johnson and his producing partner still own the very IP and are just licensing it out, in these kind of case by case gate basis, or if this Netflix deal gives them the right to kind of further develop content within the Knives Out universe. Oh, I assume, Jesus Christ. I assume <laughs> that, that be, sentence makes my fucking skin crawl. Well, you know, this is this is business. So I assume in to, on top of the two sequels, we could get like some sort of TV show set in this world, something of that nature. A spinoff about Lakeith Stanfield's character. Yes, yeah, something, Whatever. something some like, like that. that. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the simplest equation is this. Big, huge, splashy films bring new customers to streaming services. The existing library and library of original TV series is what keeps them. That is generally considered the kind of modus operandi of a lot of streaming services. And then last thing here before we move on, how do you see them rolling this film out? So that's actually interesting. Another good question. I wrote about this as well for Observer. I could very much see in this post-COVID world in which the 60 to 90 day theatrical window has completely shattered. Every major movie studio, essentially except maybe Sony, has a deal in place to shorten that window or is experimenting with like fucking, hybrid releases. Fucking Sony, man. No, so, but Sony's CEO has said we're going to take, he's suggested with no uncertain terms that we are going to take advantage of shortened windows. So they're just, you know, waiting for that domino to fall. So I could see finally after years of Netflix and major exhibitors like an AMC butting heads, I could finally see them coming to Durham's on some sort of 30 day window before it actually hits Netflix or something like that. I could see some sort of hybrid theatrical release for Knives Out 2. That would be a first for them, correct? So they've released like The Irishman or Marriage Story for like yeah. 32 weeks at a time just to qualify for Oscars, but that's in 
you know, select theaters in LA to meet right. the Oscars criteria. I'm talking about like a wide release nationwide, potentially for like 17 to 30 days, somewhere in that range before being also available on Netflix. Now that we're in this whole new world, anything's possible. And then finally, do you think that this gamble, if you could even call it a gamble, is going to pay off for them? Ultimately, yes. I, I think despite yeah. the massive uh, dollar amount, it's probably a, a decent bet based on what the market would demand for them. Let's say, you know, they were selling it to Amazon or Apple or or another major studio. The, the price would have been similar. When you're a market a company with a market cap of 235 billion, another 450 million for a high profile yeah. uh, franchise doesn't matter. And Ryan Johnson does not have an overall deal with any studio. So why not try to just butter that bread? Yeah. So I think it's good personally, but you know, that that's enough about knives out, even though I can talk about that all day. Uh, moving over to traditional movie studios, Warner brothers has officially canceled new gods from Aver DuVernay and the trench, which was the Aquaman spinoff that James Wan was producing. Uh, I'm disappointed. The writing was on the wall, Eric, for sure, but I'm disappointed in, I couldn't care less about the trench, which I thought was dumb from the, from the jump, but I was really excited for the idea of new gods. It was completely different and wholly unexpected from traditional DC fair. And it was uh, poised to continue the kind of dark side, mythic cosmic storylines. Uh, I'm disappointed. I say this nicely as nicely as possible, but if you actually thought that these films were ever going to see the light of day, then you're kind of a moron. And what I mean by that is kind of what you said, right? How you thought the trench was a bad idea as soon as you heard it. When they were announcing the trench and new gods, they hadn't even figured out how to fucking do Batman yet. <laughs> you expect me, you expect me to, to believe that they were gonna venture out into this theological, cosmic, century-spanning new god story or a fucking horror film set within the depths of the waters. Give me a break. It has brought about an interesting debate that I'm shocked I haven't thought of at this time. It's funny because I know the answer more than I know the question. The answer is money. Warner Bros. doesn't want to let DC go. The question is, why hasn't DC tried to make what Marvel has going on and launch their own studio? I don't know. You know, I, I, I saw this in our notes and uh, that you made for the outline for this episode. I don't know what would need to happen for that to kind of get off the ground. My thinking is that Disney's acquisition strategy has always been like, let's get a company that already is working well and just not really fuck with their formula. You know, that's what they did with Pixar. It's what they've done with other things. So with Kevin Feige already in place and with the Marvel Cinematic Universe already doing well in 2008 and 2009 before they were acquired by Disney, Bob Iger was like, hey, man, what you're doing works. We're just going to give you more money. I don't necessarily think DC Films has that. You know, Walter Hamada is doing an okay job. But this, is, but this is the studio, Warner Bros., who invented the genre with Superman and then reinvented it again with The Dark Knight. So how the fuck are we close to 15 years into the shared cinematic universe of filmmaking and they still haven't figured it the fuck out? How is that? How and, and and even if they have to like swallow their pride, still uh, maintain financial control over DC films, but secede, 
creative control. I don't know what it's going to take, but the fact that they've spent what three years developing a new gods film that people like me and probably like you knew was never going to happen. They're, they're running in place. And it's to the point now where I don't know what it's going to take for them, for them to nail down a formula that consistently works. Because at this point, DC is like, uh, it's like playing that game where you spin the revolver and you, you don't Russian know. Roulette. Which, yes. <laughs> like, yes, one or two of them may be good, but there at this point is no discernible pattern of quality here. And I don't know what it's going to take for them to get there. I think at a certain point earlier on in the development, both the new gods and the trench were going to happen. I, I think, and I'm get pretty sure. Yeah, absolutely. Get I think, I mean, as Forbes reported, I think uh, yesterday after the Hollywood reporters report, uh, I think the main reason was because that these are officially being scrapped is because flashpoint is going to be a soft reboot for the DCEU that essentially sets the stage from a logistical standpoint for the shared universe to continue. And obviously with these kind of changes and retcons that Flash is going to introduce, the Trench and the New Gods no longer fit into those plans. So I I think at a certain point, yeah, they definitely were going to happen. And I would have liked to see New Gods and I still would like to see it because I think it's a good idea. But I I think they are trying to corral all of their ideas outside of Robert Pattinson, the Batman into one more streamlined universe that has essentially second roll of the dice after the failure of, you know, man of steel, BVS justice league. Yeah. And, and as I've said for a while, as long as they get the Batman, right, they could fuck around with whatever yeah. they, they want to do. They can make a trench movie for all I care, <laughs> but just don't fuck this one up again. I don't know, man. I don't know. It's been unencumbered a, it, by the DC, like the world building and interconnected universe. The Batman's going to be great. Great. I think yeah. Matt Reeves is the fucking man. I, I know. Knock on wood. <laughs> All right. Uh, Lucasfilm has released the first trailer for the Bad Batch, which I believe arrives in May. It follows the uh, clone troopers in a new animated series. Uh, Eric, you know me. I really like the Clone Wars. I really like Rebels. I'm, I'm Star Wars is my jam. I have never once in the history of my Star Wars fandom cared one iota about the uh, stormtroopers and and every single time i say that on twitter i get i get absolutely like sh- fucking steamrolled by every star wars fan I- i'm sorry i just don't find like rex and the gang that compelling I'm, I'm glad that there are people out there that love it and that are really invested in their characters that's just not a corner of the star wars universe that has ever interested me i'm sure the bad batch will probably be good but I might not even like watch it live. That's when I might let, you know, all the episodes come out and then I'll uh, binge it. It's funny because, because this is the, yes. uh, Clone Wars. What is it? Season seven or eight came out last year. Yeah. Because this is the first of these Clone Wars shows to be released while I'm an active participating Star Wars fan. This may be the one that I check out. And I also got like a more mature vibe from this trailer so maybe i'll be able to reverse engineer interest into the old shows that i still have like started and stopped a few times i've never really been able to get hooked so i'm hoping this show does that for me i'm gonna tune in i hear your point about like of all the star wars characters to spin off to we're really gonna go with the clone troopers i get that but they put this out for a reason disney especially this specific animated arm of the star wars world seems to know what they're doing quite well 
And depending on the tone, you know, who who knows? This could be like the Star Wars war film that Rogue One was trying to be, you know? Overall, I'm really excited for Taika Waititi's film and Star Wars Acolytes because that those are both confirmed to move outside of this same damn 60-year period we've been stuck in since 1977. Like, you know, there, there's literally 100,000 years of intergalactic history to explore. And we're just like, hey, you know, these six decades, that's the only time period where you're going to get a glimpse of. So that's why I'm excited for those two projects. Uh, Invincible, sticking with, you know, superheroes and whatnot. It's a new animated superhero series on Amazon based on the comic of the same name from The Walking Dead creator, Robert Kirkman. Uh, I had never read Invincible before, but I had friends on Twitter who's like, dude, as soon as you get those screeners, you got to watch them and let me know what you think. Because like this, it's this guy's like favorite comic ever. And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then I watched them. I'm like, oh my God, I totally get it. I love Invincible. Four episodes are available now. I've seen all four. I'm like so over the moon with this show. Yeah, you called this one out earlier. You were like, yo, make sure to watch these screeners because you think it's going to be not a big deal, but a talked about deal in our space. This is one of those ones that's going to gain week by week because of word of mouth, right? Like by the time it ends, it'll be a thing. Uh, It's on the verge of getting there. I'm not as blown away as you are. I think it's enjoyable for sure. I wanted to get into a quick plot points and, you know, Perhaps down the line, we we could recap this show a bit. But right now, we just wanted to touch on it and how I think that it's starting to grow within the fan culture. But all right, spoilers for the first four episodes of Invincible are coming. Warning, warning, warning. Okay. So as it's revealed, the dad, Omni-Man, is, you know, a quote-unquote bad guy, right? That's like the big twist at the end of episode one is he fucks up the pseudo justice league in just gruesome fashion and really really great shit because that is how a battle against a superman type person who's trying to kill you would really go i mean that was vicious so delving into that twist are we getting a sort of dark side zod situation where it turns out how like the omni man people have a name what is it like tritons or some shit or valtriums or something i I don't know is it gonna turn out that him and his people aren't sent to planets to like protect them but rather to like terraform them to make them like their own earth that feels like where we're going what are your thoughts here so yeah i mean i have not read the comics i don't know what's coming but clearly this dude is not what he presents to the world so i have been from from that moment i'm like okay so clearly his species and or just him alone has an ulterior motive a a dark agenda that is most likely aligned with either terraforming so so his species can take over or perhaps like repopulating his species if if there's not a lot of them out there something sinister of that nature that is self-serving and not altruistic for the world and it that's a great point about repopulating because it all seems to trigger once his son starts to get his powers. Like that's what starts to kick his plan into place. So I enjoy it. I definitely look forward to it each week. I'm bummed that they haven't just given us the whole first season because I'd, I'd crush it like that. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a supremely watchable show, which I think it's very quickly paced, bright colored, great soundtrack. Like we said, it's gruesome as fuck. There are some 
animation sequences that look like they're from 15 years ago some of it looks very dated i i I can't really tell what if they just didn't spend that much on it with something like this when you're just trying to bring a comic book to life i don't think you need to spend that much on it so it doesn't really matter uh if you haven't checked it out yet and you're still tuning in at this point kudos (laughs) Kudos, yeah but um definitely check that out all right, moving on. Godzilla vs. Kong officially arrived on HBO Max and U.S. theaters. Eric, you had already seen it, and we had discussed your opinions on the last pod. I think I'm even lower than you on it. I Again, the, the monster mashness, great. Awesome fights. Really like that. But everywhere else is just so utterly bland that it's almost unwatchable, to me, at least. No, a lot of people are like, yo, I loved it. point, because it's like, and you get the and, and this is a criticism of me that drives me nuts because this is not the person I'm trying to be like, oh, you're just a snobby critic like me, Eric, bro Bible. Imagine me. People call me a snobby critic and the shit that I say on this podcast, <laughs> you know, like it, it's it, it defies thought. But that's the rap out there. If you're not like monster punch, monster equals good. Yeah. If you're making me sit through two hours, I'm going to judge the entirety of your two hours. And I've talked about this on this show before. If you get the watch check from me, (laughs) you're dead to rights. If I look at my phone or watch like, all right, what time is it? How long do I left? That's a problem. It's your version of the AI crossover. (laughs) Exactly. Like it's game over. Right. Exactly. It's done for you, dude. Yes, the fight scenes and shit were good, but I would prefer the anticipation that Godzilla won and Kong Skull Island gave us with a serviceable plot. It's not going to win an award, but it's a serviceable plot that that keeps you engaged and not wondering, all right, when's the next fight scene going to come because I'm so bored. So I think it's important to be able to compartmentalize while you may enjoy Godzilla vs. Kong for its fights and while that may be the only reason you showed up that's not what a movie is that's a scene these fights are scenes and to judge something as a whole you have to take into the account things like what did you think of the preposterous millie bobby brown brian tyree henry subplot (laughs) i said something along these lines in a tweet right after i watched it and it was that you know director adam wingard occasionally shows off some nifty flourishes, but not nearly enough to overcome the generic wasteland that that is everything else. And I know 2014 Godzilla is pretty polarizing in terms of like the monster verse crowd, but in watching this, I very much appreciated the character drama they were going for and the foundations they were laying, even if they made a terrible mistake to kind of point of view shifted up from Brian Cranston to the very wooden Aaron Taylor Johnson. I appreciated the ambition of that film's human emotion more than literally anything. The here. scene where the soldiers drop down to like, uh, and there's yeah, I mean, the red... Gareth Evans is a much better action director than Adam Wingard will ever be. And then, and the, but that moment is more intense. Yeah. Viscerally entertainment storytelling intense than anything in this movie. And while yes, it's slower and it's got more on its mind and it may not be as popcorny, I will always opt for something like that. Godzilla Agreed. was a shadow in the background, but he was fucking terrifying. In this, he just pops up. Hey, everybody, Godzilla's back again. You know, <laughs> like 
there's no sense of myth to him. He's just a toy to be played with. And that bothers me. And to that point, spoiler alert for Godzilla vs. Kong, giving you your warning. The ending third kind of act, which again, really fun fight scenes, but you can't make Mecha Godzilla not be ridiculously laughably cartoonish, in my opinion. Like, I understand it's it's part of Godzilla lore. So everyone's like, yeah, we finally got a character we're familiar with and love. But to me, it, it was just a joke. Like, I was laughing on screen. I'm like, oh, he's self-aware. Like, oh, it's a, it's a goddamn robot Godzilla that in no way, shape, or form would ever be as effective as two living creatures. It just was stupid to me. Yeah. All right, let's let's go to these quick hitters. Uh, Stephen Yen, speaking speaking of Invincible, is in talks to star in Jordan Peele's next film alongside Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer. Uh, hell yeah! It's my whole reaction. Hell yeah! Yeah, same. Fantastic. <laughs> Great stuff, oh, Jordan Peele. Once again. Yeah, guys, guys, just killing. It. I can't wait. Uh, Russell Crowe is set to appear in Thor: Love and Thunder. I'm assuming very quick cameo, but like that's only a good thing. Yeah, hey, it's sure. Russell Crowe. That was funny. That, good, good yeah, scene. that'll be great. Plus, Damon. Uh, I think also <laughs> Melissa McCarthy is gonna pop up. So there's a fun ones there. Hopefully, it's like a scene where they all pop up at once. You know, that yeah. would be great. Listen, Taika Waititi, like famous people, want to work with this guy. Love and Thunder. I think outside of Eternals is probably the mcu film that i'm most hyped for because when yeah. you consider that ragnarok is like consensus top five mcu and they've just added christian bale and natalie <laughs> portman to the mix like get the fuck out of here dude like so, taika watini is disney's golden boy right now and, oh. and rightfully so i'm so excited for every project he touches and what's and do you want to know why he's because awesome. his sense of humor is able to tow that lines tow that line where he's able to entertain both adults and kids his sense of wit can be molded into any age group that they need to be he could be raunchy as fuck or he could tone it back and be pg but it'll all be super witty and clever and quick so Super quick tangent. I was at South by Southwest in 2019. I was going to interview him and the other executive producers of what we do in the shadows. And I was in the FX press room that had like a buffet and everything. And the very nice FX press uh, woman was like, you know, and if you want something to eat, here you go. And Taika Waititi turns around with a bagel in his mouth, rips off a bite and goes, you can have mine. And it's just like, like you know, just, just fucking around. Like in the yeah. morning, it's like, it's like eight in the morning. We're all tired. And he's infusing some energy into the room yeah, and just yeah. joking around with me. And I'm like, I love you, Taika Waititi. Yeah, I'm sure his vibe is fucking phenomenal. Yeah. Person. Uh, Brad Pitt is doing 95% of his stunts in Bullet Train. You're, you're excited for this, aren't you, Aaron? Dude, every time I hear about it, it sounds cooler and cooler. I mean, what what else could we want here? David Leach is, is directing. Yeah. David Lee, Stackhouse, Brad Pitt. I love how Brad Pitt, he had gone from like not doing much in front of camera work to doing like heady awards work to like Ed Astra and Once Upon a Time. Gets his Academy Award. He's like, all right, let me cut a check and fire some guns again. Like, let's get right back in the saddle and do this thing, which I love. Like, action star Brad Pitt yeah. is one of my favorite actors out there. So, yeah, like, dude. if this is Rich Man's Troy, you know, in terms of quality, like, I'm good with that. I'm like, awesome. Yeah. Great. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then finally, Warner Brothers released a different, better trailer for the Suicide Squad. 
I think it was because that theatrical trailer leaked. You and really I, think that that's yeah. exactly why? I think that's why. Because even f- from some tumultuous mixed reactions, they don't usually respond that quickly. But I think they, it leaked worldwide. And they're like, fuck it, let's just put it out. And it was better. Well, much better. Significantly yes. better. So uh, <laughs> here we go again. <laughs> All right, let's hop into the Falcon and Winter Soldier because we know that's why everyone's really paying attention anyway. Not not for our beautiful voices and crescendos. Uh, this episode called The Power Broker, it opens with a commercial for the Global Repatriation Council, reminding those who return from the blip that they're here to help them. Yeah, they're here us- to help. I'm getting, I'm getting <laughs> shady vibes already, but okay. Before taking us to Germany, where John Walker is on the heart for Carly, uh, Morgan Thau, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, and the Flag Smashers. Uh, Walker and Hoskins, they roll up on the secret refuge site where we saw the Flag Smashers last week, but they're gone. Walker loses his temper after being spit on by the guy they're interrogating, while Hoskins tries to reason that they've done all they can here. Um, I, I thought just starting with the GRC, the MCU, to its detriment, can too often look backward and inward to move forward. And I think the GRC commercial was a cheeky bit of self-awareness in its tagline. Reset, rebuild, restore. I think the MCU is smartly, Eric, dealing with the fallout of the Infinity Saga in this kind of real, uh, in real life type of way, while also somewhat preparing to, for lack of a better term, wipe the slate clean to a degree. You know, new adventures, new characters, new phase-defining narratives. So I thought that maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I like that. See, my ears perked up with them last week when John Walker was explaining how he's somehow involved with them. And and like like the first that we heard of them was out of John Walker's mouth. So that is why I was like, all right, I already don't trust these fuckers. And then just something about the overbearing kindness. Maybe this speaks to how fucking cynical I am in real life. But it's just something about the tone, like the overt. We're here to help. They like are almost, laying it on thick. Like almost midsomar cultish type vibe, you know? <laughs> yeah, like that's a good come, we'll come clean. We'll come cleanse you. You know, shit like that. Just forget your past life. Something about, as you just said, them laying on thick struck me the wrong way so and i also found it to be a cute little continuation of the commercials that we were getting from yeah wanda now for a split second i thought i'm like well, is this gonna go into like a dark you know twist but it didn't but you're right it is a little bit of a running motif now which i like so and now as for john walker i just want to point out here i get he's all salty about getting bested by Falcon and uh, Bucky, but they make a point of going through how he went through all these physical tests and he tested off the charts. Did he not go through a (laughs) mental evaluation, like a little bit of Rorschach testing to see sort of what his state of mind is? Like, yes, I understand being spit on is abhorrent, but my guy, you are clearly not in the right like mindset to be Captain America right now. So And as I pointed out last week, it only took him two weeks from being in the field to being cap. So his whole vetting process and being propelled into the role of cap has clearly been accelerated by whatever forces that be, because by no soldier before then, remember, he said he won three gold uh, medal of honors just because he's done heroic things in the battlefield doesn't mean he he's not mentally and emotionally capable of doing horrible shit obviously his temperament is not 
of one that you would think Captain America should have. And they try to point that out here. I, I agree, but I actually like that his temperament is all over the place and he's not mentally suited right now to be Captain America. I like seeing a little dark side in Walker, you know, give the character additional shades. Last week we saw to me that he's a likable dick who was more, more or less trying to do the right thing. Here we get a split second of that temper. Let's keep exploring that. Let's keep let's keep this guy playing the lines, but we're not exactly sure where he falls. How far into villainy do you think that they're going to push him? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, based on last week, again, he, he's a fallible man, but someone who probably wants to do the right thing. So I don't even know if he will go full villain. Because now he just seems more consumed with tracking down yeah. Bucky and Sam than doing the right thing and the task at hand. You know, he is all consumed by he's he is consumed by his not quite revenge, but uh, yeah, he's got some side agendas going on right now. Yeah, for sure. So I just think that there is clearly this guy didn't go through all of the checks and bounces he should have to get that shield. Uh, in Berlin, Sam and Bucky arrive at the prison holding Zemo with Bucky volunteering to get it, to, to go talk to him due to Zemo's obsession with Hydra. Uh, as soon as Bucky walks to the door, Zemo starts rattling off the secret code that turns him into the Winter Soldier that we became so familiar with in Civil War. Bucky tells him there's no more super soldier serum out there. Zemo, running mental laps around Bucky, says he knows where to begin looking. Uh, this entire scene from the setup in terms of the kind of individual seeking information on one side and the prisoner behind the glass on the other clearly evoked Hannibal Lecter. Uh, those vibes, those tones, that kind of dichotomy between the two. And I really like the line that Zemo spits at him. Uh, something is still in there. 10 words into the conversation, Zemo has struck a nerve with Bucky's vulnerabilities and fears. So I, I did like that. Now I do have problems that begin here with the rest of the episode, but I want to hear what your take first. This to me highlighted one of the MCU's biggest flaws, right? But not in the way that you think, not for what it was, but for what it showed the MCU lacks. Having a villain that we could just return to and check in with makes the world feel so much more lived in and rich and expansive as a comic book world would. As I like to point to, as my sole reference point in life, in Batman, the animated series, <laughs> whenever I would always love the ones where he would go to Arkham and talk to Freeze and talk to Joke and just check in with them to like let you know that even though they aren't in this episode technically they're still out there doing their villainy shit and that's sort of the vibe that i got here right as soon as Zemo is back on screen you're like oh fuck like this is a guy who fucked the avengers up like this is not a man to be trifled with and there he is still out there and the mcu's problem is that they have a tendency of in their one-off films killing off or uh disabling the villain of that film Think of Killmonger. How great would it be if we could go check in with him again? But we can't because he's quote unquote can't, but we can't because he's dead. So I think that this was a moment of strength because it highlighted the MCU's weaknesses elsewhere. I really like bringing Zemo back. And I think Daniel Brühl is such a good performer that he immediately injects some, some much needed life. And you can and tell he he's having a blast. He loves this character. 
And he acts circles around Sebastian Stan and Anthony Mackie, in my opinion. For sure, for sure. Now, I do have problems with it, but I think it's best to kind of move on because they're, they're results of the action that is about to follow. So Bucky and Sam are kind of debating the merits of working with Zemo, but hey, too late because Bucky reveals that he's already orchestrated a prison riot to help Zemo escape. So as Bucky and Sam are arguing, in walks Zemo. He's like, hey guys, I'm here. Shit's already going down. Sam is not thrilled about it. To then, say uh, the least, yeah. Yeah, to <laughs> say the least. So, But he does know where to start looking for these flag smashers and whatnot. So he basically takes them to a private airfield and reveals that he's been rich this whole time. Explains that they- And they worked to- in Baron. Yeah, they worked in Baron. They've got to now uh, climb through the ranks of the crime world in Madripoor to begin their mission. And while on the plane, Zemo gets his hands on Bucky's notebook notebook and the trio start discussing Marvin Gaye, you know, at the African-American experience in the U.S. They start discussing Steve and Captain America. And through this discussion, it's also revealed that Madripoor used to be a pirate city in the 1800s. And Zemo tells Bucky he needs to once again become the man he claims is gone. <sighs> Eric, can, can I just go on a little bit of a rant here? Because here is where I, I, the episode kind of teeters off balance for me. And I wrote about this for Observer today. The rest of the episode from here to me, I have problems with, and I'm going to get into this. So countless post phase one films in the MCU verbalize the movie's messaging rather than deliver themes from the natural ramifications of choice and action. And that is okay from time to time for big blockbusters, particularly Marvel that has to balance intensive world building and huge narrative setup for the next future chapters. But when it becomes a franchise default setting, as it has become, it can undercut the messaging the story hopes to provide. So to me, far too often, Marvel tales see a hero defy the advice and instruction of those around them in the name of doing what they think is right. And oftentimes, this winds up worsening the situation as a result. And then in response, our hero acts as if they've kind of stumbled into some semblance of self-realization and acknowledge their mistakes. Yet instead of changing course, they continue doing what they're already doing. And then they just so happen to luck into a happy ending. And that happy ending then doesn't demand them to change or reckon any of their bad behavior. So a couple examples quickly, Tony in Age of Ultron creates Ultron despite the protest from his team, then immediately turns around to create Vision again, despite the protest of his team. The fact that he ends up winning does not negate the fact that he is repeating a mistake that everyone around him is asking him not to do. Uh, Stephen Strange and Doctor Strange, hugely arrogant character who lives a reckless lifestyle that ultimately costs him everything. Uh, as soon as he's introduced into the mystical arts, he then starts ignoring all of the advice and instructions and warnings from sorcerers that are far more seasoned than he is just to keep plunging on with his provincial tunnel vision of I can handle it. Scott Lang and Ant-Man tells Hank Pym, I'm done breaking into places and stealing shit. How can I help? Hank Pym tells him, break into places and steal shit. Peter Parker in Spider-Man Homecoming says, you know, uh, ignores all of Tony Stark's advice and warnings and then is celebrated for it just because he happens to catch a vulture. At every step, Marvel wants to sell the audience on change and growth without ever really embracing the ugly nature of it, which is consequences for your actions. Instead, the heroes just continue doing what they're doing and suffer no consequences. And just because they save the day at the end, they are 
you know, absolved of all responsibility. Now here we have. Now hold on though. Let, yes. let me just interject because I'm ranting. Well, no, but you make a good point. But by that logic, shouldn't Bruce Wayne be thrown in jail? Like how, like that is a slippery slope when, when it comes to, at the end of the day, vigilantes. That's what the comic book heroes are and always will be. So while I understand your thematic point, especially over the course of 15 years with characters we've been with for so long, that logic can be applied to all of them. I disagree because it's not vigilanteism that I'm arguing. It is tactics, approach, and willingness to take constructive criticism and work with others and take their input. At every step, we see these MCU. So you, and you're not so, so much. You're not so much advocating for consequences, but more tangible um, and consequences. Proof, tangible proof that they are learning from their past mistakes and have changed the way that they are going to act going forward because of that. Yes, because at the end of the day, a lot of these Marvel movies, many of which I love, tell you the character has changed. And they say this character development has been earned because we're showing them having a happy ending when really their behavior, actions, and choices don't reflect that at all. Right. And now, so specifically to bring it back to Falcon and Winter Soldier, we have Bucky, Bucky. a known murderer who has been an assassin for 90 years. I knew oh, it was going here. Of course. A known murderer who's, only, who's been an assassin for 90 years, a heinous criminal, unilaterally deciding to, deciding to break out another very, very, very dangerous criminal who bombed the UN, killed a head of state in King T'Chaka, and pitted the Avengers against one another, who deserves to be in jail. Uh, and so we have him unilaterally breaking out of jail, and then we have that terrible plan followed up by Zemo's awful Scooby-Doo plan in which hey, he's trying to play dress up and infiltrate Madripoor to get more information. And it all Ew. is just a, a, com a, a confluence of cascading mistakes made, which I, I don't like because it sets up thematically essentially the illusion of character development and character catharsis for Bucky that right now is not earned. And then just my my minor point underneath all that, as much as I like Daniel Bruhl, as much as I like Zemo, for the rest of this episode, he does not feel like the Zemo of old. In Civil War, he's an elite trained soldier with a dead family. He is essentially a normal man, which is why his antagonism was so compelling. Now here, again, I know it's comic accurate. I'm not arguing that, but he's revealed to be this massively wealthy, rich baron with deep ties to the underworld crime syndicate that is clearly very hard to infiltrate. It seems like he's been elevated to this ultra elite superior of a person. And that comp complicates all of my feelings of, of how much I like Zemo in Civil War and how this feels like an entirely new iteration of the character. Even if I like Daniel Brühl, even if his introduction excites me within the Falcon and Winter Soldier uh, uh, journey. So I know that was a whole lot of ranting, but I think it's important from thematic standpoints to point out my issues with it. Whew. The way in which Bucky allows himself to just revert to attack dog ways is concerning, both for him as a person and for, uh, and for, for the audience's point of view from what you just said. To which I will respond to just to play devil's advocate, but he seems so blindly committed to this cap shield thing that that like this seems like something he feels is worth the means to the end. Right. Um, that once that like, you know, he it's not like he asked for this. Right. Had Sam just kept the shield, he wouldn't have been involved at all. But. 
He'd this, still be watching TV on his floor with no other furniture in the room. This symbol and, and Cap's belief in him and that he's a decent man is what kept him, what keeps him alive. It's his life force. It is, it is without that, he doesn't have a purpose because he doubts, like he said, he doubts if Cap was right about him and it's thrown off his entire balance. So I could understand with, the sort of old gun in the West, Logan. All right, I'll put the claws back on this one time just to get this job done. And then I'm done. I'm out the game. I said I was out. I was out. Y'all dragged me back in. I'm here. I'm going to do what I got to do to get what I got to get done. And then I'm out the game. On t- I understand what you're saying. and I do get it. But this man's supposed to be living under strict requirements of a, of a pardon. Well, and he's just make out a there point killing. Of it. They, do, they do make a point of it to show that people in the crowd are filming him whoop all this ass. So I, think I hope there that, are consequences. And I think that that may be a subplot. Because you got to imagine at some point, they knew that every fan was going to ask, how is this century-long criminal just running around the globe willy-nilly? It's a fair question to ask. And I do hope that they bring that up. The positives of the whole Bucky Zemo thing. I liked the way in which the MCU got a little creative in the narrative structure in which they delivered the news of the jailbreak. Like having it seem like it like their conversation ended, but then having Bucky bring it back up with Sam being like, well, what if this happened? <laughs> and then showing it happen in this sort of broken timeline this Tarant- clever and cheeky for sure. Tarantino-esque almost. Um, it vaguely reminded me of the prison murder sequence in Breaking Bad. Obviously, it's not of that level, but the way we're sort of getting narration from a third perspective of what's going on as it's happening. And then the quiet moments when they're on the plane, this sort of harkens back to that scene in x-men days of future past which i think is a very strong scene where also on a private plane where eric and charles you know that is the most intense fight they ever had forget about anything physical charles screaming you took her from me and eric being like you abandoned us that's powerful (laughs) shit and this scene to a much lesser extent has that and what i find powerful in that is it makes the mechanics of heroism feel more real and weighted as like that your past and your enemies are out there and it could pop back up and fuck with you. We've all had that in real life. You know, there's people that you don't like, maybe people you've literally fought before that you have to spend time with down the road, whether it be you wind up at the same bar because you, you have the same friends or whatever. So I, so I found those scenes of enemies not so much putting down their shields, but acting like the normal men who they are when they aren't on the front lines, while still knowing we are not on the same team, but right now we're two men on the same side. For sure. I, I agree with all of that. Uh, do you know why they call it an elevator scene? What is that? So an elevator scene, they, they call it an elevator scene, and, and I'll explain it all. Because an elevator forces, you know, two or more people into a confined space, which usually requires them to interact some in some way. So, so that is just a, an overall umbrella, you know, platform to try to to get characters to interact. It doesn't have to be an elevator. Now, with the the great example you pointed out in Days of the Future Past, and here we have the private jet scene, which is accomplishing the same thing. Funnily enough, in the same uh, vehicle. 
But you're absolutely right. It is a space in which our characters are relatively forced to interact with one another. And through doing so, you get these conversations about ideology and the, the greater motivations behind who they are and what they do. And you find common ground and where they still are diametrically opposed. And that's the interesting stuff. To and me. I think that that's what's always been fascinating about Zemo, right? That he is not so much this superpowered being. He is what used to be a regular man with a purpose. That this is all. This it though. With his, his, he's like, oh yeah, and by the way, I am deeply connected to all these shadowy organizations I, and I've got billions of dollars and everything. It, it, it takes a little bit away. And again, I, I know it's comic accurate. I know everyone's like, well, you know, that's what he was already like. But I was going to get into this later, but I don't think him being rich detracts from his pain or what he went through. So I still think it's a valid characterization there. And I actually find this to be a more realized 3D version. He's sort of eccentric. He's He feels like a more regular, like we saw him in, Civil War, that man was turned up to 110, laser focus, tunnel vision. His goal was his life. Now we're seeing the more behind the scenes who Zemo is. And he's an eccentric dude. He's dancing at the club. He likes Marvin Gaye. He drinks. Like So we're seeing, as has been a theme of this show, who these Titanic figures are behind the mask. And I feel like just the way that we've seen that with Bucky and Sam... We're getting that here with Zemo. And, and I enjoyed the character all the more for it because I know he could flip that switch anytime he wants and go right back into fucking lockdown <laughs> mode. All right, so from here, Carly and the Flag Smashers have made their way to Latvia. So Carly can say goodbye to who we think is her dying mother, though it's not explicitly stated. Uh, and then we get our first look at Madripoor, which we now have touched on. It's the third fictional locale in the MCU after Sokovia and Wakanda. Uh, our trio are, are headed off to Lowtown, which is essentially the crime-ridden half of the city. And as soon as they arrive at the bar, par, at the bar, one of the power brokers goons steps up to Zemo, telling him he's not welcome here. And of course, predictably, a fight breaks out. And Bucky just lays the smack down and whoops all sorts of ass. As you mentioned, uh, there are people filming. So his bad behavior is most likely going viral. And the U.S. government's definitely going to see that. Uh, because, though, he whoops so much ass, the trio gets their invitation to, Z to see Z Zemo's connect, where Zemo offers the Winter Soldier, who, we, again, we know Bucky's pretending, in exchange for knowledge about the Super Soldier serum. As expected, because both of these plans, both Bucky's and Zemo's, were fucking terrible. <laughs> uh, the meeting goes south immediately because Sam's covered is blown. Uh, they escape, but there's now a bounty on their heads with everyone in Madripoor seemingly made aware. And then, of course, just in the nick of time, Sharon Carter arrives to save the day, invites them to her place in Hightown. Uh, like I said, this was a Scooby-Doo plan from Zemo. It was terrible. It's have Sam play dress up. This is a guy who was just two weeks ago recognized by a bank employee in bumfuck nowhere. You don't think that the high crime syndicate city uh, in the world is going to notice him? It was just terrible. It was terrible for Zemo to break, uh, for, for Bucky to break Zemo out. And the NIST for all his mastermind genius in uh, Civil War, it was just stupid. And I also felt like I love seeing Sharon because she kicks a lot of ass in this episode, but she just pops in as the plot demands and like Zemo, in my opinion, feels like an entirely different character than we met in winter yes, soldier and civil sure. war. I will say though, for me, 
per like oddly rapid change, I'm willing to buy more than Zemo's. Thanks. Not going to lie. Uh, so we really talked about all the stuff in this scene. We talk, We need to talk about. I will just say quick, as you said last week, all of the flag smasher scenes just kill momentum, man. Yeah. It's brutal. We're now halfway done with this series and we neither know what they want nor care. Um, Don't care. Don't care. Part of, me thinks, part of me thinks that they're leaning towards it. They're the actually the good guys twist, but Carly's yeah, at the end sort of. I was gonna say, but their goal may still wind up being the quote unquote good guys. And then finally, I hope Madripoor is a fixture in the MCU going forward. I would love to know more about it. I would certainly love for Shang Chi to sort of delve further into this underworld that they've got going on. I just think it's a fascinating city that is that that is ripe for the mcu to do something different in. i just want to quickly before we move on to the next plot point going back to my conversation about uh consequences and character development i just want to sum this up bucky a known murderer and sam a current employee of the u.s government have now executed an unsanctioned mission on foreign territory resulting in the deaths of dozens with the help of an escaped felon just when you lay it all out, man, it doesn't look good. I know, I know. But you can do that, you know. That, to me, falls under suspension of disbelief. Uh, it speaks, though, to the irresponsibility and the lack of change, the rigid character structures, and the right. fact that at the end of this, maybe, maybe, they're going to be like, see, it all worked out well, so Bucky is now a happy person. And like, right. I mean, well, no, you didn't earn that. But there's still three episodes left, plenty of time for them to switch the script. Uh, so from here, we get some exposition about Dof Dr. Wilfred Nagel, who is the super serum recreator in the modern day. And we we get uh, basically Sharon's going to help them in exchange for Sam trying to get her name cleared. And then we get this quick entertaining party scene that you mentioned. And it's just so funny seeing Baron Zemo fist bump to house music. I said in a tweet today, if that's one, my new religion, just that one quip. And two, he looks like an introvert at a party working on their third drink. He's like, no, he, he looks like it. this. So yeah, that was a good tweet. Same vibes <laughs> as that other meme. From there, it's basically back to business. The four of them head to a meeting at a predictably shady storage container facility. And surprise, it's actually a secret underground lab where extra shady shit is going on. Uh, Sharon Carter kicks the effort-loving shit out of a ton of dudes to buy the trio some time as they question the extreme creeper, Dr. Nagel. Uh, Dr. Nagel reveals that the power broker is funding his operation and that Carly stole 20 vials of his new super soldier serum. And just as he's kind of revving up and talking, Zemo kills him. And then someone breaks in and blows them all up with a rocket launcher. Of course, they're trying to shoot their way out of Dodge. Zemo tosses on the classic purple mask. He starts whooping ass himself reminding everyone of his special forces training. Uh, so this whole scene was just a, a, a an exposition dump and a fun action scene. But I gotta say, Eric, Sam can't get a motherfucking bank loan, but he's gonna get Sharon Carter pardoned? What type of internal logic is that? I'm sorry, how does this work? Because we have seen time and time again in this show and beyond that the government does not provide the superheroes with any sort of autonomy or or special treatment and well, that goes specifically for sam who they fucking lied to and cheated him out of the shield 
Well, I I think I could build that bridge by saying Sam works for the army and therefore has sway with government, whereas he doesn't work for a bank. He doesn't have sway with the banking powers that be. So it's a stretch, my man. So he can influence world national policy, but he can't get a bank loan for like a, a decent small business. Yeah, but you could say the same thing about Trump. So <laughs> uh, during this whole scene and this exchange, I did like Sharon's line. The whole hero thing is a joke. It's hypocrisy. I think she's more right than anyone wants to let on. You know, the powers that be choose when and where they want to deploy this symbolism of superheroes for their own purposes. And I think she's come around to the kind of the truth of the world more quickly than some of these other characters. Yeah, I'm sort of on the same page with you where I'm not crazy about her new sort of edgy, quippy, fuck you vibe. But then again, like if I got fucked over the way that she did, I would maybe act the same that saying i did enjoy her ass kicking a lot i love this sort of stripped down hand-to-hand fighting that we get with sharon and zemo this sort of extraction raid john wick-esque fighting style that i don't think we've seen in the mcu since the winter soldier movie correct me if i'm wrong yeah. winter soldier is the best big screen fight choreography in the mcu so this r- reminded me of that i mean she's nice Eric got so excited that he turned his mic off. He just banged into it with his with his gesticulation. <laughs> She's knifing dudes. Well, because back in college where we used to watch the raid, we used to call when he would knife somebody and then fucking rip them. Rips. She was ripping people. So I really enjoy that. I would love to see more of that gritty winter soldier-esque fighting in the mcu as a whole do we think zemo really drinks i get that i was just saying how much i enjoy that but as somebody who strikes me as someone who would always want to be in control of himself and the world around him getting drunk doesn't really align with that i don't know this again this is a new iteration of zemo that i think undercuts a little bit of his his emotional stability and, and impact that I really liked from Civil War as a normal guy. So I, I don't know what this new new Zemo does or doesn't do. Clearly, you know, he's taking shots at the bar. He knows he knows the bartender, like let alone like the head guy, you know, like I just didn't get that vibe from him from Civil War. And I, I think this creates a new character that isn't as, you know, emotionally resonant as, hey, I'm a normal guy who's got a grievance, who's taking you down. Now, And then finally, do we think the power broker is going to end up to be a big reveal? A reveal in terms of someone we know or a reveal in terms of like, this is a new character that's important. Either. I I think maybe the latter. I I would be surprised if it's someone we know, although I'll be be happy if it makes sense. I'll be like, oh, wow, that was a good reveal. I wasn't expecting that. But I'm assuming it's a new character. Yeah. Okay. Same here. All right. So from here- it, It will be somebody who plays a role- beyond the scope of this show. I mean, before the end of this episode, which we'll get to, I would have said no. Now I'm like, hmm. Okay, This, this could carry over because we're getting more and more allusions to the wider MCU. Yep, yep. From here, the story returns to the Carly subplot and we get more of this humanization of the Flag Smashers. Then we cut back to the brothers douchebag, Walker and Hos- Hoskins. That's a great line by Eric, who learned that Bucky and Sam were at the prison the day of the riot and Zemo's escape. 
Hoskins isn't convinced because apparently he went to, you know, school for idiots and just never learned anything. And to Walker's <laughs> credit, he immediately knows they did it. I- I'm sorry, but that's just a ridiculous coincidence to be like, I don't know. I don't know, John Walker, my buddy, old pal. Like maybe, maybe we're reading into it too much, too much. I'm like, really? Uh, Elitely trained soldiers were here and then our guy escapes and they didn't have anything to do with it. Like, come on, man. Get your head out of the flag. Uh, so he Walker knows they did it. And that's setting up clearly further conflict between the two crews. On the plane headed to Latvia, Sam and Bucky again argue about Cap Shield. And Bucky's promising to take it from Walker himself. Similar to the last episode where Sam's like, Bucky, we can't just beat up the new Captain America and take his shield. And Bucky's like, why not? Yeah, we can. <laughs> uh, so I like that. And I like that Sam here in this conversation, you can see his growing resentment for not only shield, but the burden that's kind of been placed on him. Uh, then we cut to the Flag Smashers who are pulling off another supply heist. And they're, you know, it's food for, for individuals that are starving. And we get that. That's great. But then they blow up the building and kill all of the hostages inside. So that's, you know, not so great. Not great. Yeah, not yeah. great, Bob, as Mad Men would say. Uh, the trio then arrive on the ground in Latvia, going their separate ways so Bucky can take a walk, leading to the reveal that they are actually being tracked by a member of the Wakandan Dora Milaje, who is looking for Zemo. Very cool reveal. Wasn't expecting Ooh, who that. Who is the Dora Milaje again? They are like the Wakandan Kingsguard, basically. Gotcha. Now, is this a character that we've met before? I, I believe, I, I don't know the actress, but I believe she was one of the Dora Milaje that we've seen previously, I'm pretty sure. I, I don't think it was, um, the, the name escapes me, unfortunately, but she plays Michonne on The Walking Dead. She's the main Dora Milaje in uh, Black Panther. The name, her, that actress this escapes me, but it wasn't her. Do you think that there was a version of this episode where that reveal was meant to be Chadwick Boseman? That's a, that's a really good question. I hadn't thought of that. I don't know. That's a really good question. Maybe, because as we discussed on an earlier pod, they were switching things around as recently as like October, September. So we know they were making some last minute changes. And they had been name checking Wakanda a bit up until this point. We know that him and Bucky are kind of tight. Part of me, the way that it felt isolated, the way that Bucky literally walked away and it was in like an alley, which is a set that you could prop up anywhere. Just made me wonder, is this a reshoot? Is, is this is something about this? That's a really good know. observation. Food for thought. And then, like we've been saying throughout all of this episode, everything with the Carly and the Flag Smashers is a momentum killer. And I understand and appreciate that they're trying to create sympathetic villains. It's just not working. I don't care. Let's let's just go back to what we what we're most drawn to. Yeah, my final takeaway from this chunk was. Bucky and Sam need to get their hands on this shield next week because I'm tired of hearing about it. Like, I'm ready for the after now. Like, go kick his ass, get his shield, go train with it, and then use it. I'm tired of hearing about how much it's weighing on Sam and how much it means to Bucky. We get it. We get the weight behind it. Let's fucking get it now. Go out and get get it, boys. Red. Time is money, (laughs) boys. Come on. All right, speaking of getting this We're halfway done already. Yeah, we're halfway done. So let's jump into the business hour. Let's jump into the awards and categories because this is about getting that bread. Uh, the Infinity Gauntlet Award for the real MVP. I'm going with cinematographer PJ Dillon. He's a guy who cut his teeth on Vikings. Just really, really solid shots. Uh, the action was done well. Madripoor and these kind of neon city lights. Oh, you really cool. sucker. You fucker. What? I have that for later. Fuck. Well, then I'm glad we're on the same page to a certain degree. It was just, it was just a very well-presented episode from start yeah. to finish. I got Zemo. 
Sam and Buck would be kind of shit out of luck if he's not there. They wouldn't know where to begin. So I guess it was their idea to go talk to him. But like without him, they uh, they have no plan. And then once again, Bucky Stees, his jacket game is so fucking cold. It's ridiculous. He wears when, when they go to visit the underground lab after already changing a few times, he puts on like his tactical one armed leather fucking Stees. Awesome look. When they're going to that underground lab, Brandon, I shit you not, he's wearing a fucking black sports jacket with a gloss lapel. Bro, fire shit. Like, and then at the end, when he goes to meet the <laughs> Wakandan, he's got another sort of great shirt jacket hybrid. My man is dressing how I'm trying to dress. Simple, functional, but stylish. As someone who owns a Poe Dameron jacket, I respect everything you just said. <laughs> and I love my Poe Dameron jacket. It's fresh uh, as fuck. Have you ever, is it like, it just looks like one or it's an actual? No, it's like a Poe Dameron jacket with like a rebel patch, but it's fresh as fuck. Poe Dameron was styling, dude. He was, you're right. Like that sort of steez, but in the real world, not in like the space world. Thor the Dark World Award for the worst performance. I'm reiterating what I said, Bucky's performance. Now with three episodes left, there's still plenty of opportunity to change Marvel's formula. But as of now, it looks as if Bucky and Sam will eventually save the day with the same old reckless impulses. And Marvel will tell us Bucky has gone through this incredible internal journey, even though his behavior, his choices, his actions don't offer a shred of evidence after the actions of this episode. Uh, Again, the show can absolutely realize this and pivot to some surprising conclusions. But as of right now, because we don't know the future, this is what is being set up. And I'm disappointed in that. Yeah, I, it's tough because, and it's sort of what I was just talking about where people complaining to me for being too critical about a film called Godzilla vs. Kong. It's like, what level of consequence are we expecting in a franchise that is ultimately geared towards kids? You know, at the end of the day, that is what we are fighting against. Perhaps that is why Zack Snyder deserves credit because he was out here killing motherfuckers. Superman dead was planning to kill Batman. So that was perhaps not consequences in terms of paying for your sins, but consequences in terms of finality, right? We're never going to get that here outside of the Tony Stark deaths or the cap going on to find his new life and shit like that. For me, I'm going with Selby or Shelby or whatever the fuck her name was. Didn't dig her vibe. Talked all this big game just to get fucking sniped immediately. <laughs> it was and, and it was so stupid. I'm sorry. It's just that this was my least favorite episode of the bunch, and and that that was part of it. Yeah. Uh, the Jarvis Award for the best performance by anyone except the lead actor, Daniel Brühl. Just a really talented actor who's good in everything. And uh, I've interviewed him in real life, and he comes across exactly like his characters, and that he's got these like clipped, intelligent sentences. That's how he talks, and I'm like, oh. So you are like Daniel Brühl. Yeah, I have the same one, of course. No wonder he was so down to come back as Zemo, because you could just tell he's having a blast, especially this more sort of 3D eccentric fun version. Uh, The Tony Stark Exposition Award, a.k.a. the Star-Lord Who Award for shit we need explained to us. Uh, I'd like to know more about Madripoor and the criminal underworld that exists. That's this kind of John Wickian shadow realm that I'm very interested in. And they clearly hold a significant amount of sway in a world affairs if they can create globe trotting super soldiers. So yeah, give me give me more of that. 
if if we ever get the um agent jimmy woo x-files type spinoff madripoor could be like an intersection of that show True. yeah so i rename this to not shit that we need explained to us but shit that we want explained to us yeah madripoor give me more of it time stone that real quick award aka rewind that real quick sharon carter's elite jujitsu skills i am an mma fan myself i was very impressed with her grappling and submission skills and like we talked about probably some of the top tier hand hand-to-hand combat since winter soldier and you know daredevil man i know that's not mcu proper anymore but those are the kind of gold standards for hand-to-hand fights and uh falcon winter soldier doing a solid job i have got zemo saying trouble <laughs> I just I just love that. I just absolutely love that, dude. Oh my god, can you please do a Zemo impression every episode? That was so great. Rubble? <laughs> so good. I wish you guys could see him right now. Oh, and, that's great. Uh, and then I'm going with what I called it neon lights in rain cinematography, aka that Blade Runner 2049 special. For sure, for sure. It's a good Dude, song. neon lights and rain. Put it in every movie. Wild Wild West, neon lights and rain. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. Just put it in every movie. It looks so good. No country for old men, neon, neon lights and rain. Yeah. I like it. That Blade Runner 2049, <laughs> baby. Love it. Uh, put this in Odin's Vault Award, a.k.a. the Put That in the Museum Award. Conversations about ideology, Eric. To your exact point about the, we're not calling it the elevator scene. It's the private jet scene now. We, we've upgraded. Zemo talks about how when a group of people begin to give power to a symbol and elevate that symbol above the common man, for lack of a better term, and, and turn that into an icon, they forget the flaws and the mistakes that trail behind it. We can become blinded in our desire to put our faith into a comforting force. And then as a twist to that, the very existence of superheroes can, in a way, stunt or hold back the development of humanity and society. Because now that they are elevated to a pedestal, we expect them to solve all of our problems for us. So hearing that exchange of ideas in that scene, I thought was chef's kiss. That was the good stuff. So I have the same thing, just a little more zoomed out. I just ha- I just wrote down the dynamic between those three. You know, we all yeah. we already thought that the dynamic between Sam and Bucky was the strength of this show. Add in a better actor and villain to that mix. Great stuff. And then I also have Sam's what the hell is it? Uh, tiger, Silent Tiger, Smiling whatever. Tiger, Smiling Tiger. That suit, awesome look. <laughs> Even though, again. A bank employee can recognize him, but like these very well-informed international criminals are going to be like, oh, what's up, smiling time? ST, what's up, bro? Want your <laughs> usual shot, dude? Okay, cool. Yeah, with what was that? A snake's heart? That was Whatever gnarly. it was, I'm not doing it. Yeah, that was gnarly. Not even if what kind of whiskey would need to be in that shot glass for you to take that shot? It would be whiskey infused with super soldier serum. Like the only way I'm doing that shot is if I get to be a superhero afterwards. There's not one out there that you've always been dying to try. Well, this past weekend, the reason I missed last week's uh, part of last week's show was because I was in Chicago visiting my brother. And we actually popped a Pappy Van Winkle 20 year, which is a very, very, very good bottle of uh, bourbon whiskey. And that shit went down smooth. But even that would not be enough for the snake card shot. <laughs> no, no, it has to be super soldier serum. I, I need to get something out of that long term. 
for me to even put my lips near it. What about you? Oh, me? No, but you're like the whiskey guy. I, I don't, since I guess that, that would make me the beer guy. No, yeah. there's, there's not, there's not a single one out there. That <laughs> beer, the, beer, beer's taste is not the best to start with. So I don't have to go fucking with that. The cap lifts the hammer award for best hero moment. Eric, this is a first for me in the history of post-grad pod. I'm giving it to nobody. Because this time around, I don't think the actions of our protagonist are deserving of this award this episode. Not Sharon Carter going full John Wick mode on those dudes? That, that was dope. But I mean, she just popped in protecting as a, as a her plot necessity. No. Protecting her friends based on just a promise that they may help her. I don't know. It seems pretty heroic to me. Not, I mean, it's self-serving. She's trying to get back in the U.S. Not that I don't, bl- I don't blame her one iota. But it's, not, it, but it's not guaranteed. But, it's not guaranteed. Eh. You know, I I didn't like this rapidly different Sharon Carter outside of her ass kicking. I didn't like the reason why she had to ass kick because Bucky and Zemo had terrible plans. No, I'm I'm yeah. I'm withholding the award this year. Okay. I'm abstaining. Fair enough. That's fair. What about you? I just told you. Oh, oh. you got Sharon Carter. Yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. you were just arguing me. No, no, no. That's mine as well. Well, that's a fair fair one. All right, Eric. What's the worst thing you can say about this episode? Uh, there's not a lot of thematic depth. It's mainly just a standard globe-trotting action thriller, which is yeah. fine. Now, for me, in the post-Phase 1 world, Marvel is pretty much uninterested in sustained individual consequences. And as a result, I think it struggles occasionally to deliver well-earned character development and clear messaging. So I, I think that was carried over into this episode but on the flip side eric what's the nicest thing you could say about this episode uh there's not a lot of thematic depth it's mainly just a globe trotting action thriller which is fine (laughs) that's fair i like what you did there well played all right for me like i said this is my least favorite of the season so far and i am a little bit concerned for the rest of the show now having said that fight to uh, the fight choreography was really good and i gotta say the Skull Island reference two days after Godzilla vs. Kong came out was pretty slick. Because you got to remember, they didn't think uh, Godzilla vs. Kong was going to come out. It was originally in late May. So for the timing to just work out like this, that was just cool. I was like, yeah. ah, well done. Disney always fucking wins. <laughs> All right, stuff we think is cool that needs mentioning. I don't have anything this week. Madripoor has, we've talked about this on the show in the past, connections to Wolverine. Now, I'm not saying he's going to pop up. I don't think he's going to pop up. I don't even think to mention his name. But that said, in regards to what I said before, I hope this is not a one-off. I hope this this city is explored more. And down the road, if that involves Logan, then so be it. That'd be great. But for right now, just give us more of that city. Henry Cavill for Wolverine? Question mark? Why not, right? <laughs> Why not? He could do it. He's a legit... I, I, I mean, I think he's good. So, I mean, God, the poor guy going from... I mean, quote unquote, the poor guy. But going from Superman to Wolverine? Good luck, dude. Good luck. Well, that is it for us. Be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple. Be sure to follow us at PostCredPod. And, uh, yeah, until next week, you guys. All right, y'all. Talk to you later. Peace. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. 